it's an interesting time to be buying, renovating, and developing. There's a couple things, kind of smaller pieces of what I just said that are playing out, which is as rates are high and as people are having trouble, very few projects are going to be coming out of the ground over the next few years. There's an entire generation of Americans who no longer care about prestige, titles, work travel, fancy offices, and lunches. Welcome to Mundane Millionaires, a podcast for this generation of small business owners who want to set their ego aside and focus on what matters, family, community, quality of life, and cash flows. In each episode, Eric Pasifici and Kevin Henderson uncover what it takes to get a little money in the bank, control your time, and invest in building great families and lives. Let's get started. Eric, welcome back, man. Thank you, Kevin. It's always nice to be welcome back to my own podcast. It's so great to have you on my podcast. It is. It's great to be here. It's always nice to talk to you. And it was really nice to talk to Barrett Lindbergh, who is somebody that I really admire. He's yeah. kind of the championing the in the opportunity zone investment on Twitter, which for those of you looking to kind of grow a following or to develop a niche that you can make money on, Look at what Barrett has done because yeah. he's found a very niche area of investing that not a lot of people are in. He's making good money in his daily life and he's growing an enormous platform by talking about something that's a little bit different than everybody else. So yeah, a great example there, but also Kevin, a great example of a mundane millionaire because what I didn't know, maybe you knew this about Barrett, but I did not, is that he started as a mortgage broker during the recession right before the recession, the, the, the Great Recession, and then started investing on the side and actually didn't leave his day job for yeah. the better part of a decade. I, I didn't um, know that. And I thought that was one of the most fascinating parts of his story. You know, when I, I was asking sort of when he made that switch from investing on the side to like full-time gig, I guess it was, I think it was actually you that asked, but po point being, his answer I thought was fascinating was, well, I, I didn't ever really, because I was a yeah. mortgage broker doing the investing on the side. And all of a sudden I looked up one day and I was like, oh man, it's been a little while since I've done a mortgage. I guess I'm done doing mortgages. Yeah. Just such a, such a perfect example of starting with this small, he and his wife decided to take a mortgage on their home, a little money from mother-in-law and buy their first property to just slowly snowballing the side hustle into I don't have time for my career anymore. I'm doing my side hustle full time. Well, and I think that that's why people listen to this podcast, right? They're looking yeah. to figure out how ordinary everyday people end up in extraordinary life yeah. positions through pretty basic, you know, business and investment and real estate and whatever else. And that's not to take anything away from Barrett or anybody else who comes on the show and suggest that in any way, shape, or form, they're anything less than extraordinary people because they really are. But, you know, what he did is something that a lot of people could do, which is whether it be in real estate or in any type of quote unquote side hustle, you know, is to have a good day job that you're passionate about, that you're making money in, use the knowledge that you learn in that day job to spin into investment opportunities or into some sort of consulting or some sort of side opportunity 
and then watch as that grows into something that becomes yeah. so successful and, and yeah. frankly, you know, takes on a life of its own that you don't ever willfully say, I'm going to quit today and become an entrepreneur. You just say, Hey, I guess it makes more sense to go with this full time. I can do yeah. it. So I guess I'm going to do it. And that is a common path that we've seen for a lot of people. And it's a little, it's kind of our path in, in a, in a small, less, a little bit quicker sense, but um, yeah. great episode with Barrett. And yeah, we, any, any last thoughts, Kevin, before we dive in? No, I just, I mean, just to tick through quickly, like we usually do. I mean, we, we hit a lot of things, Barrett's background, obviously that we were just talking about. We go pretty deep on opportunity zone investing. What is it? What does it do? What are the tax advantages? I, I thought it was super fascinating. I think people will be really interested in in learning more about how they can even deploy their own capital. Barrett's thoughts on real estate and real estate generally and what's going on in the market right now. So pretty wide ranging conversation. I think you're going to like this episode with Barrett a lot. I certainly did. So enjoy Barrett Lindbergh and we will catch you on the next episode. Barrett, I'm, I'm super excited to hear about Opportunity Zone. Obviously, you've, you, you introduced me to Opportunity Zone on social media. I'm sure you've introduced, I think I, you know, I had posted a comment at some point that like the, the num, you know, tens of thousands at least of, of people who had probably never heard of Opportunity Zone now know at least that such a concept exists because of you and your social media presence, which I think is amazing. So feel free to, to start. I'd love to begin with a primer on, the nuts and bolts of opportunity zone, but we can kick this off however you want to, you want to go here. No, that's great. And yeah, I appreciate, I mean, it's, it's neat that I've taught you something about the, the tax code and, and, and law, because that's kind of been part of the journey is this is this, this strange esoteric niche. And I've, I've gone really far down the rabbit hole. And yeah. a couple of years ago on Twitter, just started talking about it and had a thousand followers and all of a sudden had 10,000 and, and now have 30 something thousand followers. And, and mostly what I say is about the opportunity zone tax structure. And it's been really neat to, to see that people are interested in learning about this unique way to mitigate their taxes by investing in, in real estate uh, after they have a capital gain. And so the, the very basics on the OZ tax structure is if you guys have sold something or if, if you're working with a business seller, I know you mostly work with buyers, but, but if you were working with a business seller and he said, hey, guys, I have this really high class problem. I just sold my business and I made a million bucks. But now I'm going to owe Uncle Sam uh, 250000 next April. Right. Well, that's where the Opportunity Zone tax structure becomes a really unique tool that doesn't exist any other way. If they'd sold real estate, they could do a 1031 exchange, or maybe if they'd worked with you guys long ago, they would have QSBS and, and they would have some protection. But 90% of sellers, especially in small business world, they make a million bucks selling their business, they're paying taxes. Yeah. And so now this new tool Opportunity Zone exists, where instead of paying the tax next April, they can put that money or any portion of that capital gain into an opportunity zone fund. And instead of paying taxes next April, they're paying the tax in April of 2027. So it's, it's not an elimination of the tax, it's a deferral of the tax. But that's just the smallest part of the, of the benefit. The biggest part is this new investment that they made, if they hold it for 10 years, 
then when it goes up in value, if it goes up in value, but hopefully when, then they're not going to pay any capital gains on this new investment. And in real estate, they wouldn't have to recapture the depreciation. So in, in real estate, we really aggressively depreciate assets. Right. And at the end of the investment, you have to then pay the piper for that on a normal deal. But in real estate, you, you wouldn't have to in the, in the OZ tax structure. So, so let's break that down really practically. Yeah. And we'll issue the caveat here that shouldn't need to be said, but we'll say it anyway. We're not advisors. We're not tax experts. Don't rely on this, but hopefully illustrative, right? So let's take your example of a, of a million dollar gain and, and we'll just make it very clean that it's 250K capital gains rate, 250K yeah. in taxes. So what you're saying is if that seller takes that million dollars and invests it in one of these funds, they've punted on the 250K for three years until 2027. In 2027, they pay the, the full 250, the, the original, the tax on the original gain. That's correct. And, and does it, does it lock in before I continue that example? Does it lock in rates at the time you make the investment, or no. what if going into an election year capital gains goes to forty percent? Is is that part of the risk you take in an investment yes. like this? Yes. Okay. And, and why so, is it April twenty twenty seven, Barrett? What's is that? Yes. So the the legislation passed in uh, two thousand eighteen, and my understanding is the Congressional Budgeting Office there are certain rules, and if they make uh, tax law that lasts for nine years or less, yeah. then it affects them a certain way. If they make tax law that lasts for 10 years or more, then it affects them differently. And so in 2018, they said taxes are due in 2027. And that allowed them to book the, the legislation a certain way. Interesting. And has there been conversations about potentially extending that or... There has. And I was actually in DC recently, was in a dozen different legislators' offices and it seems to be very much bipartisan support behind this extension bill. So hopefully taxes won't be due in April of 2027. They'll be due in April of 2029. And when they're due, people will get a discount on those tax bills. But that's still in the air, but, yeah. but seems to have a lot of support behind it. So let's just finish out that example then really quickly. No change in tax rate. So 2027... We pay 250K in taxes. And in 2020, let me get the math. Let's just say 2037. So 10 years, 12 10 years, years or whatever, investment. 13 years after sale, you sell the property mm -hmm. and you now have a gain of, let's say, an additional $2 million. So you're, you get $3 million back out, a gain of $2 million. That $2 million is 100% tax free. Correct. And, and there's, I know QSBS has caps. There, there's no cap. I mean, if I, our audience is mostly small business owners, but say you had a big VC exit of $100 million and you roll $50 million into Opportunity Zone investing, I don't even know if that's possible, but gains on that level of money, there's no cap on how much is, is exempt from capital gains on, on appreciation in the, in the fund. You're correct. There's no cap. And so the law as it stands now sunsets in 2047. Okay. So if, if you were to make a huge investment today, leave it in the Opportunity Zone tax structure until 2047 and then sell everything then, you know, you could have a very large gain and none of that would be taxable. The other thing is you're not required to sell in 2047. The, the legislation says that's the last date that you can take a step up to market basis. 
Ah, okay. So you would just have to go get everything appraised. That becomes your new tax basis. And then you go on about your life and you can start depreciating again. So yeah, just a weird quirk. So the base case, so backing up to the beginning, the base case for opportunity in zone investing is the government is trying to incentivize us to invest money into what they've characterized as opportunity well, zones. What, what are opportunities? Uh, yeah, I was going to say, let's take that step back. Like, what are we talking about here? Yeah. yeah, for sure. So number one, what we just talked about was the financial part of it, right? Sure. People don't like paying taxes. And so now let's, let's reduce their taxes. But this is very much a bipartisan thing. And why is it bipartisan? Because if the only reason is, hey, let's cut people's taxes, well, that's not going to be a bipartisan deal. So the reason that it that it gets support from both sides of the aisle, not to say that only Democrats would support one and only Republicans would support the other, but it really gets support from everybody because this support, this incentivizes a behavior that everybody likes, which is, hey, there's parts of this country that have been left behind, both urban and rural. And those parts of the country are all over the place. And there's so 8,700 census tracts throughout the country were designated in 2018 as opportunity zones. They're low-income census tracts, or they, they were low-income census tracts in 2010. And if you make an investment in one of those census tracts, then that's how it becomes an opportunity zone investment. Each state governor in 2018, based on the 2010 census data, made those designations, and every state did it differently. So some governors said, hey, I'm going to take the very poorest of the poor census tracts, and those are going to be the opportunity zones. Some sure. governors took the opposite tactic and said, I'm going to take my low-income census tracts that are the very closest to the path of progress. And those are going to become my opportunities on census tracts. Okay. And so, and because of the way that that happened, you've seen a disproportionate share of opportunity zone development happen in different states, one versus another. So, for example, Alabama is not a state that you would think of attracting a lot of capital. Sure. But they chose well. And they chose a lot of opportunity zone tracks close to areas and kind of in the path of development. And Alabama has received a bunch of opportunity zone capital per capita when compared to a lot of other states. Um, so it's really worked well for Alabama. So, and Barrett, you are, let's just back up even further to, so you're, you are a real estate investor and you develop multifamily in Dallas, Texas. Is, is that right? Give, give the audience your background. Sure. So I've been in real estate since 2005. I started as a mortgage broker started buying buildings in 2012, uh, really started buying old beat up buildings around Dallas and fixing them up. And as the market got hotter and hotter in Dallas, started using different structures to make those deals continue to work. So when people came in from, from Florida and California and New York and started buying up Dallas, I said, hey, these don't pencil anymore. I need to use some other way to, to make them work for me. Yeah. So we learned how to use historic tax credits and we did deals called fractured condo deconversions and a bunch of weird stuff. And then finally in 2020, we wanted to do a bunch of deals in one area. And my attorney said, well, have you looked at the opportunity zone tax structure? I knew what it was, but hadn't really looked at it. And we dove in head first is, is long story short. 
Yeah. And it turned out to be a great fit. Our investors liked it. It, it worked well with our skill set already. And we've been going ever since. So now we've done 50 plus projects, almost all those in Dallas, not, not opportunity zone projects, but over the past decade, we've done 50 plus projects. And that's totaled about 2000 apartment units. And a lot of those renovations, some of them ground up development, and most of those have been in weird structures. Sure. So what does your portfolio look like today? Are you almost entirely into opportunity zone development at this point? And what does your project portfolio look like today? Then? Yeah, almost entirely opportunity zone right now, I'd say about 90%. Okay. Some of those are renovation projects. Some of those are development projects. And some stabilized, some not. Got it. And most in Dallas. So yeah. I'm, I'm kind of looking at the map that you guys have pulled up. Uh, most of ours are on that map. Yeah. Most of them. Okay. Yep. And for the audience's benefit, I've got a map of the opportunity zones. This is the Dallas Federal Reserve. And it's the entire state of Texas. And as you can kind of see, it looks like it's, you know, there's a number of large chunks. I would assume those are, you know, like LaSalle, the entire county of LaSalle. I assume that's probably a low-income Counties, a few, few large blocks of land in the, the panhandle. And then around the major cities, Houston and Dallas, you've got, you know, spotty zones. And for those of you that don't know the city of Dallas, Dallas is really split, uh, much like, you know, a lot of our country. Maybe this is a controversial statement, but it kind of haves and have nots. And a lot of people, most of the, the vast majority of the wealth in Dallas is north of the Trinity River. There are some historical reasons for that. But you know, most of it is congregated up here in Highland Park, University Park. He kind of sprawls north along 75 in the toll road, some of these suburbs. The areas immediately south of Dallas are tremendously low income. And, you know, I don't know how you would characterize that, Barrett, being there on a day to day basis, but pretty desolate areas. Yeah. So it depends where you are. And some of these areas, so for example, Deep Ellum is Opportunity Zone. Well, Deep Ellum, I mean, there's, several 15, 20 story buildings yeah. there. When, when Uber was planning to move to Dallas, they took an entire building. So there's high rises, you know, that, that are building, you know, steel and concrete buildings, right? Very yeah. expensive structures. And where we're doing our projects, they're very close to the Bishop Arts District. Well, some of the hottest restaurants and retail in Dallas are located in that area. So I think that there are areas that are opportunity zone that are prime for development. But there are also areas that are designated opportunity zone that just don't have anything. So kind of, as you mentioned, Eric, a bit desolate. So for example, there's one neighborhood called the Cedars. Well, a hundred years ago, it was, a, it was kind of a residential, historically Jewish neighborhood. Then that community moved and it became kind of an industrial neighborhood. Fruits and vegetables, there was a chicken plant. Like it was just this weird mishmash just south of downtown. Well, now that got a rezone and it's changing. And so now it's this infill neighborhood next to downtown Dallas. The city wants to see it get better and nobody lives there. And so it's a perfect spot for development to be incentivized. And it was, it was designated opportunity zone. So there's a bunch of different areas like that. And then there are some that are really bad, you know, true, like, hey, this is a knife and gun club area doesn't matter what the designation is, there's probably not going to be more development. So let me ask a little bit there and at the, at the risk of maybe skewing slightly 
political or at least social. And I know Dallas because this is where I live. So I'm thinking of places around Bishop Arts and things like that. How, how does this play into, and part of the reason I'm asking just to back up is it, it sounds like you're pretty plugged in. You've been meeting with legislators. I mean, you're plugged into even the advocacy side of this and things like that. How do you think about some of those social effects of development in some of these communities like a Bishop Arts, where I know I'm not a native Dallas resident, but I've known enough that there's been some tension in the redevelopment of that area where, for example, historical communities living and growing up there can no longer really afford to live in in some of these neighborhoods because of the development going on. To what extent do do you as a developer grapple with? Do you as someone who's working with legislators grapple with this sort of tension between improvement and development, but at the expense of the communities that are are in some of these places? Like talk through that for a second, because I'm I'm curious what your how how you navigate that. And you got to do it in 30 seconds because no, I'm kidding. Yeah. So, I mean, first word is thoughtfully, right? So it's like we think through these things for weeks and months and then they evolve more. But as we first started, especially thinking through the area near, near the Bishop Arts District, we were taking on an area that was kind of three blocks by five blocks that was really, really rough. I mean, there was bad crime. The first portfolio we bought was 40% occupied, but the units that weren't occupied had tenants. We just didn't know about them, right? They sure. were the the drug dealers and the, the people that weren't supposed to be there. They were living there. And so we just, we weren't thinking about, Hey, how do we avoid gentrification? We were thinking about like, how do we, how do we not get shot when we yeah, get how down? Do we stay safe? Yeah. Sure. And so I guess that's the first answer is like, we were just thinking about stabilizing the neighborhood and not losing our money. Yeah. But but then we kind of stabilized the area. We renovated some buildings and we realized, hey, our average rent in this area could go up a lot. So on these renovated buildings, our average rent's going to be 13, 1400 bucks. Well, in Dallas, that's still around 80 to 100% AMI. Mm-hmm. So, okay, well that's naturally occurring affordable housing. Well, that's great. That kind of fits everybody's narrative. Sure. Now people will still yell and scream that 1300 bucks is the rent's too high. But sure. if you, if you look at the data, it's not right. That that's what someone making less than the area median income can't afford. Mm-hmm. So we're happy with that. Yeah. Well, so now we say, okay, well now we're going to start building new buildings and we look at everything being built in the city of Dallas and really throughout the country. And you say most of the stuff being built is ultra luxury housing, right? So it's, you know, it's got a wine room, it's got a massage room and the developers shooting for rent. That's very, very high. Yeah. Well, what we realized is we had an opportunity to build something different. Not only could we build maybe with less amenities, no elevator, no structured parking, but if we did that, we could number one, charge a lower rent, and number two, still be profitable. Sure. And so we said, okay, well, let's do that. The city incentivizes that development because if we add rent restrictions to be able to rent the units to people making less money, they'll also take away our property taxes. Got it. So now it can be a win-win-win. We can do a mixed income community, avoid the gentrification argument totally, and we can have a successful project financially. Sure. And so again, it's just, 
you know, it didn't start like, hey, we're going to be thoughtful about this. We just right. want to stay safe. And now it's evolved to like, hey, how does this work? For <laughs> Speaking of staying safe, not sure what almost just decapitated my partner here. But <laughs> we don't have to edit everything out. I, I think that stays. Oh, definitely. definitely I think that, that we stays. should put that in some sort of hundredth episode highlight reel there. <laughs> Yeah, well, if we'll make that a, a, a short form TikTok. No, that, I was trying. I was trying to distract Barrett from getting into like some sort of deep social and political. We're gonna have to pull this whole segment so that the man can go develop real estate and not worry about <laughs> the mob coming for his little family business that's trying to do good in tough areas. You know. <laughs> now I I get that, but I think it's a I, I think it's important to talk about, and I you know I don't know that it's talked about enough, and in, in uh, at least as an outsider, I'm not a real estate investor developer, so at least the conversations I see, you know, a lot of it is how can we improve rents, what can we do to improve property, and and less about you know what's happening in the community and and the community supporting. So I, to to me, it's really helpful to hear, Barrett. I, I appreciate the honesty and openness. Yep. Yeah, and it's certainly got to add a whole new diet, a whole you know extra layer of like you said thoughtfulness to your your yeah. business. You know, you don't just get to go model and say, "Hey, how do I get a good return?" Now you've got all kinds of different special interest groups yelling at you, telling you that you are the problem, and telling you how to run your business. You know, in a city like Dallas, I would imagine that you've got as good of a major metropolitan city regulatory environment as exists in the country, and I would bet. And it's still a pain in the ass to develop multifamily property and particularly when you're dealing with historical buildings, older buildings. It might be um, a bit easier in Capel where Kevin is, but, but <laughs> yes. Yeah, Dallas is not great. I also I, don't know that much multifamily is being developed in well, fair, sleepy, right? You know, like yeah. and, and which belies the problem, right? Yeah. But, well, and I, I guess I meant relative to other American major metropolitan cities, you know, developing yeah. in Dallas versus developing in Charlotte, you know, or Seattle. You know, I would yep. think that you'd probably, maybe I'm generalizing, obviously, but. Uh, I think the biggest thing that we've learned is we're, we're kind of leaning into all of the, the ESG stuff and all that. It's, we don't we don't necessarily believe in, Hey, let's do this because you should, but we explore every piece of it and say, Hey, for example, building green, right? Mm -hmm. Well, building green for the sake of building green doesn't make any sense. But if I build green right now, I can use the inflation reduction act and I can get 2,500 bucks per unit tax credit on one of my projects it cost me 50,000 bucks in a change order and I got $600,000 in tax credits. Well, that math works. And so I think on a lot of it, it's just like, hey, let's lean into all this stuff and figure out where the ROI is. So Barrett, let's back up to your, your you know, sort of SMB mundane millionaire journey here. You start as a sure. mortgage broker, you're selling... Yep loans your is that your first job out of college or what did it was you, and 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 what did that look like your you know your and what years so i was managing a dozen guys who were you know 23 when i was 25 and and that was certainly a formative experience and then 2007 or 8 had to lay off half of them as a 25 year old and 
So that was again another. Did they made you go deliver that? that What news? was happening? And I'm kidding. Yeah. Did they make you go deliver the news? No. Brand? We were a small company, so there were a hundred people in the company total. So we did direct lending, and then we also did mortgage brokerage. So it was like the whole direct lending platform got laid off, which was like 50 people. Wow. And then all of a sudden it was like, hey, Barry, your team analyst has to get cut in half. And so, I mean, I was in the room, but I didn't have to. I was sitting at the front of the room and then half of my team got let go. It was, that was not good. There's a formative experience right there. Yeah. And then I was told basically, I'm not getting paid anymore. Like I'm on commission if I want to stay. (laughs) It was like, oh, okay. At a time when mortgages moving was almost zero. Yeah. But I did choose to stick it out. Basically sat down with a mentor who said, if you stay in the business for the next one, two, three years, whenever it takes, and you know you don't quit, then when it does turn around, you'll have great clients, you'll start making great money, and the guys who did quit won't come back. So yeah. you're going to have this like blank canvas, and you'll be able to write your own ticket. And he was generally right. When it started turning around, I started making more money than I realized I was going to be able to. And it felt like a zillion dollars because I'd been living on nothing for a long time. In fact, had to borrow money from, from my, my parents and you know rob any 401k savings. But all of a sudden, it, like, it felt good. And it, it you know, has continued to be pretty good for the last decade. So where, where in that, were you still at that same company when you started doing your own first real estate projects? Or when did you, when did you do your first project that you sort of sourced and acquired and, and managed the, you know, reno, et cetera? So I did my MBA part-time while I was doing mortgage brokerage in 2010, 11, 12. Got it. And that was really challenging because I was newly married, got married in 09, and then did my MBA and was working. And so it was like, you're, you're juggling three things, marriage, right. MBA, and business. And one of them was always not getting enough attention. But when I finished, I felt like I had all the time in the world. And so I came home and said to my wife, I really think maybe we should buy some some apartments. I really understood the business and had the time to devote to it. And she had a job at that point. She has a master's in, in counseling, but she kind of hated what she was doing at that moment. And she said, well, I could help with that. Okay, well, let's let's go find a good project. And so we found a little eight unit project in Dallas and I'd run the numbers, they worked. And so she'd been given, we had been given a house as a wedding gift. And so we put a little mortgage on the house and that was half okay. the down payment. And her mother, uh, my mother-in-law, her mom put up the other half of the equity. And so at that point we had a, I don't know, 25% LTV loan on our house. And that was half the down payment. And her mom put up the other half and we were off. And a year and a day later, we sold that property and doubled the money. And so that was, we were hooked at that point. Yeah. How long before you went full-time with investing? Oh, nine years, eight, eight years. Yeah. So that was 2012. And I didn't really go full-time investing for eight more years, just continued to do mortgage brokerage and never really consciously quit being a mortgage broker, I just kind of looked up one day and I I hadn't done a loan in a while yeah. and said, all right, well, I guess I stopped. Wow. So you, A little so anticlimactic. You're, you're, yeah. 
but it's the classic. So your your side project became yeah. so lucrative and had grown to be such a animal that it just made sense to say, I guess I'm just going to do this now. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. then what is your, por- what does your portfolio look like Barrett moving out of kind of development and renovation into kind of long-term hold and management? So do you, do you, you must have at this point a fairly robust portfolio of completed properties that have you flipped them all or you've kept them all for the long-term investing in OZ tax credit benefit and they're being managed or what does that side of the business look like? Sure. So along the way, I made friends with this guy named Seth. And so Seth and I, I became Seth's mortgage broker. Okay. And he kind of started doing some property management, construction management for me. And then along the way, we would see each other. So as we're doing site visits, we would notice we're trying to buy the same properties. Got it. And that became a more and more frequent occurrence. Yeah. And so finally we said, well, this doesn't make sense. We're, we're mutual clients. We like each other and we're trying to buy the exact same deals. Let's just start partnering up on stuff in the future. And so that's what we did about six, seven years ago, we bought our first property together and there was never a company. It was just, Hey, let's start another LLC. Let's raise the money. Let's get the debt. Let's go do another one. And so over the past six, seven years, we've done a bunch of deals that way until finally two years ago, I was in a meeting and said, raising some money. And the guy said, well, hey, I want to write you a check. What's the name of your company? And, (laughs) huh, well, we don't have one. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so I came back to the office and I, he said, like, we probably need to start a company. And by the way, it's probably time we hire some employees. Yeah. Cause like we, at that point we were working late at night, you yeah. know, just with investor relations and dealing with lenders and all this stuff. And so we, we gave our company a name, which is Savoy equity partners. We hired some employees. We started using like Juniper square to manage everything. And it, it's made our lives a lot simpler to actually have dedicated time and resources to doing it yeah. that way. Yeah. So let's let's recap, Barrett. So you you start out as a mortgage broker, you're doing well, you get your MBA, you start investing on the side, you bootstrap, you spend all these years building, you get to the point where Savoy, without a name, has developed to a point that you're like, I guess I'm doing this full time now. Now we are up against kind of an unprecedented environment, at least in Savoy's life cycle, I think. What is the, in your opinion, what's the status of the current real estate market? What's your perspective on things and how is it impacting opportunity zone as opposed to real estate generally? Sure. There were a few questions there, so I'm not sure which one to tackle first. (laughs) Have at it. Just, just wherever. Well, let me start with where do I believe that the current real estate market is, which is at a, a very interesting point. I think over the next year, we're going to see multiple, a lot of deals fail, you know, of, of syndicators whose names that we know, you know, we're going to see them fail. And I, I talk with people who aren't as in the weeds as, as I am, who are surprised by that. But we've been talking about that for at least a year and, and maybe two or three, because we would see their equity packages and we would be you know, seeing these deals as they were listed. And as soon as they were purchased, 
we would say there's no way that that deal has a chance. And I, I think in your world, you might see or may have seen somebody buying a business or and you see the purchase price or see the multiple or whatever. And you say, well, that deal's dead. They just don't know it yet. Right. <laughs> You're just waiting a couple of years. Yeah. So I think that that just takes time to happen and it will happen. And certainly as rates stay higher for longer, that's just another catalyst. So that's kind of number one. I, I guess I won't, I won't be shocked as those things happen. I, I think it sucks, especially for, for LPs who, who lose money. But I, I think that that will continue to play out. No, I was just an opportunity zone. You know, is that, yeah. is it a different analysis based on the way those deals are underwritten or? Well, I think it's an interesting time to be buying, renovating and developing. There's a couple things, kind of smaller pieces of what I just said that are playing out, which is as, as rates are high and as people are having trouble, very few projects are going to be coming out of the ground over the next few years. And so rent, what happens with rent is based on supply and demand. I mean, it's, that's very simple function. Yeah. And so as you see fewer projects happening, what you're going to see happen is that rent will go up, especially in, in already supply constrained markets. And so we believe on the opportunity zone side that if we can make a project pencil now, then it's going to do very well over the next three, four, five years, and and certainly over the next ten. And yeah. you said something, and not to interrupt you, Barry, but you touched on something earlier that I think is a takeaway message for a lot of people in in the business, which was you were at a mortgage brokerage during the Great Recession, and somebody astutely came to you and said, "If you can make it through this period, you're going to do amazing coming out the back end of it." Yeah. And I I don't have a crystal ball. Right, and I'm not here to to paint an overly rosy picture, but I think that that should be the message that a lot of people, whether it's in real estate or an SMB, are clinging on to right now. And some people have said like, "Stay alive till 2025 or whatever." I don't know how you know who knows how long it's going to to be this way, but certainly, and I don't, tell me if you see it differently. But I think if I'm in any business right now that's struggling, particularly real estate and especially like residential real estate. I'm probably trying to position myself so that like bubblegum shrimp, I'm, you know, the only shrimp boat left when things shake out here in a couple of years. No, I think that that's right. That no one's ever said that to me, Barrett. I'm dumbfounded by that. Just, <laughs> I like to hear it at home. I make a statement and but, you know, you're, yeah. you're right. I'm like, like there's, there's, there's more coming, but yeah, but what? Let yeah. Kevin clarify. He'll tell you why I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, now that's funny. You're from Dallas proper your whole life. I am. Yeah. What part of town? Preston Royal. Preston Hollow. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. So Kevin and I are both, I don't live there anymore. I lived five right. for five years. I was in Uptown and then um, Lakewood. We kind of did my Dallas stopover. My brother actually just moved to Dallas. Okay. Um, what part of town is he in? He did. Uptown. Yeah. Uptown. Kevin knows. He's our, he's our SMB was- chief of staff. He just moved here a few weeks ago, and I was just on the phone with him earlier today. He's like, Dallas is actually a pretty cool town. Like, we kind of like it here. Well, you know. Well, Uh, you decided to move here. That's get here in July. But yeah, so I I moved here almost sight unseen, Barrett, nine years ago. I'd been here for interviews, and that was about it. So we we actually did our research. You'll be interested, and I'd be interested to know, because I suspect where we first lived maybe in an opportunity zone area, but maybe not. We did our research based on 
schools, right? Which is a popular thing to do in Texas. For those that don't know, the public school system here is not great by any objective measure. And so you, you get a lot of real estate development and people moving for specific school districts where other, other districts aren't, aren't the greatest. So we had no other way to do that other than on paper. And this town outside of Dallas called Forney at the time had pretty great schools. Like the, the scores were really high. And so we ended up moving out there. Well, Turn, turns out there were a lot of factors that went into this. Pr- principally, they se- they settled a large lawsuit to return tens of millions of dollars to the Texas Education Administration. They would never say it or admit it, but uh, you know, taking money that they weren't entitled to take and sinking it into the schools and just a, a whole fascinating story. And very quickly, the scores caught up with with the state of of schools and in this town, but it was, it it was a fascinating town because it's, it's booming. I think it like almost doubled population in the, like the four and a half years we lived there, mostly in multifamily development. But, you know, I've since lost track of what's going on out there since we moved across the Metroplex, but it it was an interesting first exposure to Dallas to be kind of out on, out on the outskirts. That was my, my first foray into, into Dallas and learning the Dallas real estate market because it just seemed like they were cramming in as many apartments as they possibly could into this small town. Well, as a Dallas developer, it's an interesting place. There's 50,000 units. This is really rough, but there's 50,000 units being developed right now uh, that'll deliver pretty shortly. Most of those, 40,000 of those, are kind of from where your office is north. Sure. And only 9,000 of those units are in the city of Dallas. So there's a very meager supply being delivered in the city of Dallas and everything else is in Prosper, even in Sherman, Plano, McKinney, Anna, Melissa, all these other places. Right. And the city of Dallas needs more supply because there are people who want to live at the urban core. Yeah. So it's, it's a unique place when you think about stuff like that, but the school system isn't great, right? Right. And so what ends up getting developed in Dallas? Well, studios, ones and and two bedrooms for roommates. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting kind of the way that it all works out. And is that are those nine thousand doors being developed? Is that underdeveloped for demand in the city of Dallas or is that just reflective of the urban sprawl happening that people are just running away from the, the city center out to these suburbs, which for people outside of Dallas, you're not conceptualizing one of the hottest markets right now, at least from my perspective, for residential, family residential, is Prosper. You're talking particularly at rush hour, north of an hour to get downtown. Like these are not communities that are reasonably commutable for people working in the city, right? So they're they're either working in the suburbs or it's it's remote work. Like what what's actually happening in the city center with such little residential development? Is it just jobs are leaving? the demand is gone or is it is demand through the roof and the supplies is not keeping up? Well, I think what's happened is that the jobs have, have spread out more. And so there are people who live in prosper, but work in McKinney. And so there's, there's more, there are more job centers. And so people are capable of living in those places or the person who lives in prosper only goes into the office one day a week. Sure. So they might have to come to downtown Dallas or, or somewhere in Dallas. 
but they only have to do it once a week. So they're willing to work from home and prosper. But yeah, it's an interesting thing because you're right from my office. I'm my office about, oh, five minutes north of downtown Dallas. And yeah, yeah, it would take me an hour to get to prosper from here. Oh yeah, easy. (laughs) It's wild. Getting up 75 and rush hour even on the tollway is... It's tough. I mean, it's a, that's a 75 and rush hour is a unique animal mm-hmm. for even really any of some of the cities with wor- the worst traffic. I don't think there's a stretch of road that has, uh, there's some, but it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough stretch. But my story is interesting guys. Cause I actually moved to Dallas. I had never been to Texas one time in my entire life. And I did a callback interview. I was a what owl summer between my first year of law school, second year of law school. And Dallas is an amazing city on paper, right? That's It's an amazing city in person as well, but it is hard to beat Dallas when you're underwriting strictly based on papers. To your point, Kevin, moving there without yeah. even ever having been there is probably not a very uncommon Dallas story. And I'm leaving law school, or I'm after my first year, we're getting our jobs, and you're looking at the different firms around the country. Well, the major markets, New York, LA, Chicago, DC, they all pay the same amount. They call it the crevasse scale. There are three exceptions to the, to those major cities. That's Dallas, Houston, and Austin. And for whatever reason, Texas pays the crevasse scale at the major firms. And so when you compare making at the time, it was 160,000 as a first year lawyer in New York City versus being a first year lawyer and making 160,000 in Dallas, you're literally talking about twice the buying power. I mean, 2x the buying power and, you know, tax and all that. It's, it's, there's, there was no city when I was a, in that period of time, there was a chart, you know, number one buying power by first year associate of any city in the country. Dallas is number one. So I go do my callback interview. I show up at the firm and I got to tell them why I want to be in Dallas. And I can't say, buying power, you know? So I had to like tell them the story. I definitely did not tell them it was my first time ever being in Dallas, but Dallas is an amazing city, man, to build a business, to have a career, to make money. It really, it really is a terrific place. And I know that that value proposition has changed dramatically since 2011, but it's a fascinating spot. I think it's cool, Barrett, that you've been there your whole life. Well, I think a lot of the things though, that you said have not changed. Yeah. I think the economy here has become more diversified over time. So if you look at the statistics, I mean, Dallas is not tied to oil and gas. It's not tied mm-hmm. to cotton. You know, it's not tied to, to any one thing. It's just very, very diversified. And I think that will continue to allow Dallas as a whole to, to weather a lot of different storms, which is great. Have you, is Dallas a large enough or DFW generally a large enough metro area that you don't really foresee yourself growing much out of Dallas? Or have you, have you entertained the possibility of going into other opportunity zones in other states or other regions of Texas to continue the growth of your, your company? Yeah, we like Texas overall. So we're actually doing about a 250 unit deal in San Antonio right now. We've looked in Austin in general though. Of the, we've done 56 projects in our career, Seth and I, and six of those have been outside of Dallas. Yeah. So I think in general, if you see us doing a deal that's outside of Dallas, it's probably a good one. Yeah. It's, it's um, because the, 
yeah, that really that, underwrote well. Yeah, that hassle factor, right? Like you, yeah. we really have to overcome that hassle factor to get out of Dallas. Yeah, and this is maybe a little bit of a pandering question. I don't know, but is that interest driven by the fact that the opportunity, the economic opportunity, is here and it's close to home, so that's good enough? Or is there this element of I want to build my career by doing? by working in the community that I live in. Is, is that at play at all for you or? It's all the above. I mean, I think for a lot of the people that you guys work with, I think the same thing probably applies, but yeah. the stuff that we do, renovating apartments, developing apartments, a lot of it has to do with relationships, yeah. but a lot of it is hands-on. I mean, we're working with physical real estate, right? So if there's a problem with renovations, if, if the deal wasn't here, then we'd have to get on a plane or drive a couple yeah. hours or whatever. Being able to be there in 20 minutes is worth a lot. Yeah, it is. And Dallas DFW Metroplex is big enough. I mean, there's 8 million people here now. Yeah. You know, it's the DFW Metroplex is the size of the state of Connecticut. We were That's the crazy. biggest jobs creator. 35% of the jobs created since COVID in the United States were created in DFW. It's like, why... Why do I need to leave to make yeah. money? I can make a whole career's worth of money here. Yeah. Well, and you've got those big old fat opportunity zones too that are within how far <laughs> is it to drive from you know just the layout to layups. the cedars? It's fifteen yeah, minutes. 10 minutes. Right? Yeah, ten I mean it's easy. Yeah. yeah. Well, so let's maybe pivot there just for the last couple of minutes to wrap up then Barrett. So I'm a listener out here. I maybe I'm not sitting on life-changing money, but I'm super intrigued by this idea, idea of investing in opportunity zones as part of my diversification strategy. Or maybe I'm a business seller that's coming into low to mid seven figures of liquidity. I'm, I'm super intrigued by this idea. Where do I go? Whether that's to Savoy in particular or just generally to look at getting involved in an opportunity zone fund. What's the next step for someone that's like, ooh, this this sounds really intriguing for my investment portfolio? Sure. I think the first thing to understand is this is a hundred a hundred billion dollars of equity has gone into opportunities on investing. So this is not a unique problem. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people have have gone before you down this path. <laughs> and there are institutional funds there are small funds doing stuff like we do. And then some people do it totally alone. They set up their own OZ fund using attorney and CPA, and then they buy their own real estate. So yeah. there's a lot of different paths, and you can literally start by Googling opportunity zone investment. And certainly I'm available through LinkedIn and Twitter and a whole bunch of other ways and reach out. And I'm glad to help direct you down a path. Yeah. Yeah, why don't you shout out if you're if you're comfortable sharing where where do people what's your Twitter handle? I know you're pretty active on Twitter and LinkedIn. Anywhere else people should go to find you or are those yeah. the best places? Twitter's probably the best. So I'm, I'm Dallas Apartment GP, A P T G P, and that's probably the easiest place. Awesome. Yeah, we'll we'll drop that in the show notes for this show. Well, yeah, and anything else then, Barrett? Anything else you want to plug that you're working on? Feel free to shout it out, newsletter or anything like that, and then we'll We'll wrap up on that note. No, no newsletter or anything else. You know, I just think out I'm, there fighting the good fight. <laughs> that's it. Just have to get this stuff built. Love it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mundane Millionaires. 
If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, make sure to follow Monday Millionaires wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time.